Hello, deserving listeners. It's just me today. I thought I would respond to some Patreon emails about case conceptualization, theory, psychodynamic stuff. But before I do that, let me introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. Before going into the email, I just want to remind everyone that if they haven't already, please become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. If you haven't done so yet, please do so. Go to patreon.com, become one of us, and get access to our premium episodes and also get access to the feed that doesn't have any commercials. If the commercials are severely bothering you and you want to get access to those juicy, super long, deep dive episodes, become a patron. Okay, this is a email, an email from patron Elizabeth. She says, I would like to start off by saying that I absolutely love your podcast. Well, thank you, patron Elizabeth. As much as I love our field, there are many times when clinical terminology can become very overwhelming, exclamation point. I listen to your podcast every day now to gain more insight regarding being a therapist. What is some advice that you offer graduate students? I currently find it overwhelming to find a theory to focus on. As of right now, I am just wondering if choosing a theory is a priority. I feel as though it can take several years to develop a deep understanding of certain theories. As a result, I feel if I attempt to choose one now, then my choice will most likely change once I start my practicum. Okay, so answering that question. Yeah, very complicated question. This is a universal trainee experience. Some programs make you choose one. I would say anecdotally, the majority of of graduate programs will make you choose a theory. In my program, we don't make people choose a theory. We let them choose their own theory. And as long as they also incorporate systemic theory, uh, you can be a cognitive slash systemic therapist. You can be a pure systemic therapist. You can be a structural therapist. You can be a brief therapist, solution focused, psychodynamic systems, which is basically what I am. So we let people choose. But regardless, this is a high anxiety issue for trainees and for novice therapists. I remember when I was starting out 20 years ago, I I don't remember exactly why, but I chose object relations. It was presented to me at the t- at the time as sort of within the family therapy realm, even though it's not really, but since it's object relations meaning relationships. I hate the the term object relations. It makes it very difficult to understand for most people. Essentially, objects are are people. So, uh, I mean, they can be other things, but the primary objects are your, are your, the people that you love, your parents, your siblings, your spouses, your kids. So object relations should be called like family relations in a way. So that's why object relations sometimes is, is involved in, or under the umbrella of family therapy. But and so I was exposed to it in my family therapy program and I don't know exactly why I chose it. I, I I would like to think that it appealed to me, but I also think that I chose it because it was extremely complex, and I really like complex things. <laughs> and so, uh, whereas the other theories seemed 
uh, fairly understandable pretty quickly. So I think I chose it because of that. And I, I also believed in the past. There's not a lot of theories out there that really incorporate the past, which some of you might be a little surprised by. Uh, psychodynamic theory, object relations, psychoanalytic theory, schema therapy, which is kind of a kind of an overlap with cognitive therapy. Most most of the most of the theories don't incorporate the past, but psychodynamic theories do, meaning that the past affects your present personality. It's a gross, you know, simplification of different theories, but so maybe that's why it appealed to me. But but anyway, I remember when I chose object relations during my graduate program and soon after graduation, I I remember not understanding it at all. I I remember knowing enough to be able to write a paper about it and to put it into words, which sounded very convincing probably to the reader. But as soon as I, you know, put that paper down, I, I, if you asked me to articulate what I wrote in the paper, I'm just assuming that I didn't really know how to put it into words. It, it, it takes years, as, as you're saying. It takes years. So um, the whole notion that you're going to become proficient in a theory, and especially how that theory applies to being a therapist in a comfortable way, that that you're going to be able to understand that very quickly, that, that notion is ridiculous. It'll, it takes years to understand how to be a therapist. I'm 20 years in and, and I'm still learning. I'm still like, oh, okay, I get that part. I get that part. I didn't understand that part five years ago and so on. So to expect that you're going to get that in your graduate program is silly and you you recognize that. So you're asking like, well, what's the value of choosing one theory if I'm just going to if I'm just going to change my mind? Well, the value is if you have to start somewhere and even if you're quote unquote just choosing something out of out of thin air, you will, you know, presumably spend some time learning about that theory because you've quote unquote chosen it, <clears throat> and then you at least become knowledgeable in one theory. And really, I recommend that everyone learn all the theories. That's just my personal thing because all the theories have merit, and the best therapy in my opinion, and according to some research, is theory, is therapy that will tailor the therapy to the particular client and will potentially utilize many theories with one particular client. So you have a client who is really not ready to talk about uh, changing in a particular way. Well, you want to use potentially theories that are are good for that sort of issue, like solution focus, motivational interviewing, uh, these kind, you know, collaborative kinds of therapies. Whereas, if someone is fully in the throes of wanting to process grief or something, well, maybe psychodynamic therapy, narrative therapy. So it really just depends on the person and and the the issues. So in 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 my mind, you should know all the major umbrellas. And the major umbrellas are psychodynamic, behavioral, cognitive, systems, humanistic, uh, biological, or um, neurobio, and what am I leaving out? Uh, brief therapies, solution-focused, narrative, postmodern therapies. Am I leaving anything out? 
hopefully I'm not. But anyway, you want those are the at least most of the major umbrellas, and so you want to understand the the basic tenets of each of those umbrellas because each one of those will will help you. And to understand even one of those umbrellas will would potentially take years. I have been studying theory for 20 years now, 20 years of my life. I've been spending a good amount of time uh, trying to understand this. And I'm a professor, which so it's my job to understand this sort of stuff. So I presumably I have a lot of time to prep for class and to understand things. And this podcast has certainly helped. So to, to really feel comfortable, which I actually do now, uh, probably for the first, you know, I, I guess I would say uh, up until about four or five years ago, I wasn't that comfortable. I became much more comfortable in the last five years because I, I really spent a lot of time trying to understand how all the theories fit together. And that takes a long time. So, you know, it, it was 15 years before I felt comfortable. So, so you have to start somewhere and you might as well just choose something that appeals to you, you know, do some rabbit holing on that thing and then, and then rabbit hole on something else later on. Uh, I, that's, that's my advice. Um, you know, plus just being a therapist takes years to grasp. So what's the chance you're going to understand, um, how theory applies to being a therapist? You know, it just, it all goes hand in hand. It takes a long time. So here's my recommendations. You got to read a lot. I, I, and I was victim of this when I was a novice therapist. I think in graduate schools, I just got so tired of reading and stuff. So I just avoided reading, <laughs> but you really have to read. You really have to read different uh, sorts of literature on theory and how it applies. And you have to look at multiple sources. You can't just say, well, I have one book that talks about theory and that's good enough. No, I, I, my understanding of theory regarding literature, I have been, if you, you really benefit when you read multiple sources, because each person puts their own kind of spin or style on how to explain a particular thing. And I find that it's easier to, to triangulate on the actual thing when you hear multiple people describe it. It's sort of like when you, when you ask about a restaurant, and you wonder if it's a good enough restaurant to eat at. You you don't just ask one person. You want to ask 10 people and you want to hear each of their description. And as each of them, because you've never been there before. So you're trying to paint a picture in your mind about what that restaurant is like. So if you ask 10 people to describe the restaurant, each one of them is going to have a different kind of perspective on the, on the restaurant. Each one of them will highlight a particular thing. Each one of them is looking through a different lens. And with 10 people's perspective, you're going to have a much better picture in your head of what the actual thing is than if you just listen to one person. So sometimes I come up with analogies that I really enjoy. <laughs> and, and then I tell myself, Kirk, you got to you got to remember that analogy for some later lecture or something. And, you know, I never do, of course. But so, yeah, I really like that analogy. So you, you need multiple sources, hundreds of sources, actually, if you're looking at for instance, something as complex as humanistic psychology, you need to read hundreds of, of different authors talking about what humanistic psychology is and the different camps within humanistic psychology. You know, you got your existential people and your phenomenological people and your person-centered people and your gestalt people and your, you know, you got all those experiential people. You, you've got lots of different camps within the camps. 
And you got to read them all, in my opinion, to, to really get it. Okay, so you should also get supervision. You should press your supervisors to help you with that. I have found varying levels of competence regarding supervision in this area because sometimes supervisors are highly experienced working in the field 30 years and they might be professors and they might be uh, researchers. And so, you know, they know a lot of stuff. But then you have another group of supervisors who might be two or three years out of graduate school themselves and they barely understand theory because how could they? They're, they're novice therapists. So, you know, it depends. Plus, some supervisors are assholes. Take it from me. I've, I've had some, some terrible supervisors in my career and some wonderful supervisors, but also some terrible ones. <laughs> so, um, and as a professor who works with interns at, at sites, I can tell you that the, the variability and competence regarding supervision is really quite varied. But the variability is varied. Did I just say that? Okay. You also want to consult with people. You want to consult with peers. You might even want to hire a consultant. I've had people hire me as a consultant to talk about theory. Someone hired me to talk about couples therapy, which is basically a theory of understanding how to be a therapist and how to conceptualize people's problems and, uh, and other kinds of things. People have uh, hired me as a consultant for how to understand personality and this kind of thing. So, you know, cons- consult with people uh, is also helpful. Listen to a podcast like this one that talks about theory. You also want to apply the theory to your clients or to human beings. And, and then you want to contemplate how that application worked because theories all sound great when you write them down. And, and in the books, they always provide extremely, shall we say, simplistic examples of how the therapy works. But when you actually start applying the theory, given your own particular style to two actual clients, that's when you really learn how all this works. It's, it's for, for instance, for me, and I don't know if this makes sense for other people, but cognitive therapy for me is just perspective. It's just about your perspective and the stories that you tell yourself. In that way, cognitive therapy, constructivist therapies, uh, narrative therapy, it's all the same thing to me. Now, some people would say narrative therapy is diametrically opposite of cognitive therapy. But to me, in terms of how I conceptualize things and how I approach people and clients, narrative therapy and reframe is also, it's a, that's a structural family therapy thing, reframing, uh, in, in some ways, solution focus in terms of looking at positives. It's all kind of in this one area in my brain of, of cognitive narrative reframe and a little bit of solution focused in there. And so and that's because if when I read the theories, they were different. They were very different theories. Narrative therapy, when you read it, is extremely different from cognitive therapy. But when I actually apply it to clients, I find that the same pathways in my brain are involved in both of those theories. And, and so it's easier for me to kind of lump that all together in my brain. Now, other therapists, I'm sure, would approach that differently. But you really so you have to apply theory to things and see how it feels and actually see if it works and what, you know, what kind of interventions, what kind of approaches work with people given how that theory informs your work. It's, it's, it's a back and forth. You really just have to figure that out for yourself. That's why for a lot of trainees, what happens is they learn theory in their, 
in their didactic courses and their non-clinical courses where you just sit in a classroom and someone teaches you about a theory. You, you learn the theory and you can, you can write about it and you might even be tested on it and you can, you know, you're, you're learning the book learning of the theory. And then they go to their uh, internship or their practicum or their early practice and they develop a whole different set of skills in terms of how to be a therapist and never the twain shall meet in terms of their didactic book learning regarding theory and the actual practicality of being a therapist. And that's because a lot of novice therapists don't go back to that early learning, that early book learning and see, see how the bridges, you know, and develop bridges between that academic learning and the practical reality of what it is to be a therapist. So, and you have to, and you have to spend time doing that. And it takes a lot of time. Um, also, you need to understand the historical context of how each theory, each theory emerged. It's very illuminating when you actually study the history of psychology, the history of our society, and how different theories emerged and why they emerged, and in opposition to what did they emerge from. A lot of theories emerged in the 50s and 60s. Cognitive therapy, um, behavioral therapy had kind of been around, but it became more popular. Family systems theory theory came a little longer. Humanistic psychology came around the same time. And you have to look at World War II, and you have to understand the dominance of psychoanalytic theory, and you have to understand the movement uh, with the baby boomers in terms of self, looking at the self, and and the hippies in the sixties and, you know, existentialism, it, it, it all, come, it all interweaves itself into the development of these theories. And when you understand that, it helps to understand how to think about these things and, and how different authors were writing in, because they, you know, for instance, if, uh, you know, in 200 years, when someone reads about Donald Trump, they're, they're, probably not even going to know who he is, uh, depending it's before the election. So God knows, but you know, you know, so, you know, pick, pick your famous person of today, whether it's Michael Jordan or I don't know, I can't think of Michael Jackson. Uh, think of any other Michael, Michael Scott. Um, any of these people in 200 years are not, they're, they're not likely to, they might know a little bit about that person, but, if you read people writing about Michael Jordan, you would you would hear them talk about uh, from today. You would hear them uh, if you're two hundred. So you're two hundred years in the future, and you're reading a news article about someone who's writing about Michael Jordan. Well, if you read that article, and they're talking about how he's the greatest player of all time, and how LeBron James, there's no way that that LeBron is as good as Michael and all, and all this kind of stuff to someone 200 years from now, that, that piece of writing will be very confusing. That's my, that's my point in bringing up this. Sometimes I come up with very bad analogies and, <laughs> but anyway, just going with this analogy 200 years from now, they're going to look back, they're going to read that piece and they're going to think, what am I reading? I don't even get this. And in order to understand that you have to understand Michael Jordan's story and the history of the NBA and Chicago Bulls and and how the uh, the people reacted to him and then you have to understand how LeBron James came out and how he was reacted to and and his demeanor and the way he entered and the way he left Cleveland and went to Miami and then he went back you know you have to understand all that 
and understand the because if you just looked at the statistics 200 years from now, you'd say, well, LeBron James had great statistics, and so did Michael Jordan. Why would why were there all these articles in the you know the late 2000s and the early teens talking about how? Uh, LeBron James sucks compared to Michael Jordan because on paper they look almost identical. Well, it's because the historical context, how things emerged. Well, the same goes for theory. When you read uh, early writings in psychodynamic theory, early writings in cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy, humanistic psychology, you if unless you understand the historical context from which it emerged, it, it sometimes doesn't make a lot of sense. These theories don't just emerge out of nothing. Therapy and psychology is a massive social construct. It's it's different if you learn about the like theory of relativity or something. It's it's much less tied to the culture because you're you're studying physics, you're studying mathematics, you're studying something that is is pretty concrete. Now, having said that, there's a lot of culture that's interweaved in the hard sciences for sure. But in psychology, it is massively affected by society and history and context. So understanding that context helps to understand the theory, for me anyway. But the problem is, is learning history takes a long time. And you have to, again, read a lot, consult a lot, watch a lot of documentaries and blah, blah, blah. And it, it takes a lot of time. But I have to tell you that my path with this was when I was in graduate school, I was terrified. Soon after graduation, I was also terrified and low self-esteemed because I couldn't figure out how theory matched up with anything. And then later on, I basically just gave up and said, you know what? I don't think I'm ever going to figure this out really. So I'm just going to act like I know what I'm doing and and just hope for the best. And I'll just develop my therapy skills, which which I'm doing. But I'm not really going to understand how theory integrates into all that because I don't have time. I'm overworked and I'm not going to spend my weekend learning about stuff uh, that I don't even know if I even really grasp or understand. And so I went through that for a while. And then at a certain point, I really started uh, approaching learning from a different perspective and I started learning more and more. And then I crested this hill and I, I don't know, maybe that was the five year ago thing. And I crested this hill and then everything started to make sense to me. And I started in it, you know, everything I learned about the 20th century, I'm like, oh, okay, that's how that fits into the development of that particular theory. And that influenced that particular figure in therapy. And that influenced the sexism involved in early therapy theories. And that, and, you know, it's all making sense to me now. I feel like I can see it. <laughs> and, and it's given me a template upon which, or a structure upon which my other learning can be, uh, you know, fit into. So if you keep learning it, it'll start making sense. And some of you, <laughs> I know, have already gotten there because you send me emails that indicate you you understand. Okay, so other things you can do is you can go back to school, obviously. You can get continuing education. This will help. But basically, the bottom line is you have to make an effort to learn. Okay, going on with patron Elizabeth's email. But before we do that, let's take a break, and when we get back, we will continue the email about psychodynamic theory, and then I will talk about that, okay? Let's take a break. Okay, we're back. Uh, again, if you haven't already become a patron, please do so. Go to patreon.com. Also, we are giving a promo code for a discount for Loot Crate, 
So I know some of you have already signed up for it, which is pretty cool. You can go to lootcrate.com and use the promo code psychology and you'll get a discount and then we get a kickback. And Loot Crate's pretty fun. Just go to their website. You can learn more about it there. Okay. Patron Elizabeth continues her email and she says, I also had a question regarding psychodynamic therapy. I'm aware that psychodynamic is an umbrella of theories such as Adlerian, object relations, and psychoanalytic. If someone identifies as a psychodynamic therapist, does that imply, or sorry, does that simply mean they utilize all the psychodynamic theories? I really enjoy Adlerian theory, but his interventions are not very practical. And after hearing your podcast, I am currently intrigued by object relations. Okay, so just chiming in here. Yeah, just at the onset, I'll just say I actually don't know that much about Adlerian theory. I've I've read a, a fair amount about it. I've heard some lectures, but I haven't really spent the time to fully grasp it. It's a it's a for I whenever I hear about it, I'm always nodding my head at a lot of it. I think if I really dove into Adlerian therapy, I would probably find myself uh, agreeing with a majority of it. In a lot of ways, Adlerian therapy is a integration in the way that I integrate between between psychodynamic ideas and and systems ideas and family ideas and stuff. And so, um, but anyway, um, so your question is: If someone identifies as a psychodynamic thera- therapist, does that mean they use all psychodynamic theories? Well, this is all just anecdotal, so just take that with a grain of salt. But I I have talked with a lot of therapists and if someone identifies as a psychodynamic therapist, there's really no way to know what they mean by that because the theory is, is so broad and they, they likely don't adhere to all the notions within psychodynamic theory. So they probably adhere to a, a set of the beliefs and you really don't know which set they believe in. Plus, some people will say they're psychodynamic or psychoanalytic when they really don't know what they're talking about. So you really just can't tell. Now, if you, if someone were to advertise themselves as a, a DBT, dialectical behavioral therapist, or an EMDR therapist, you, with 99% certainty, you could predict what, they, what their theory is because it's, it's pretty easy to understand theory and it's not very complicated and there's not a lot of wiggle room within those theories. Whereas psychodynamic theory, there's a lot of wiggle room because it began in the 1800s, this theory and involved thousands and thousands of different theorists who in some ways, uh, some people actually don't conglomerate all the different psychodynamic theories into one theory. You know, you have your object relations people and you have your classical, classical psychoanalysis people and you have your your neo-freudians and your ego psychologists and you've got your relational psychodynamic people and then you have psychoanalysis which is different from psychodynamic in some ways and so some people actually don't lump it all together because there's so much variance between within the, the subschools of psychodynamic theory or psychoanalytic theory that some people say the other subschools are idiots and so 
it's it's a very broad thing. So if someone labels themselves psychodynamic, there's really it's really hard to know. But in general, you could probably assume, probably predict that they believe in the following things. They probably believe that our past influences our current personality and that our past influences our current issues. It'd be very strange if you called yourself psychodynamic uh, as a therapist and didn't believe that the past influences the present in terms of personality. That would be very strange. Also, you could probably assume that they believe that understanding our issues helps us change for the better. They probably believe in insight is what we call it. They probably, as a therapist, will try to help you understand yourself as a way of of having more power over your issues. Uh, that's a so insight is a common psychodynamic uh, belief. Also, they probably believe that talking about the past helps. So that's another classic or very fundamental psychodynamic idea that's probably true for all psychodynamic therapists. They probably believe that when appropriate, talking about the past, talking about you know, bad situations you went through will probably help in the, in the present. They also probably, probably believe that our relationships tend to follow particular patterns due to our personalities and our defenses. But this one isn't quite as, as common defense mechanisms. Certainly some psychodynamic psychoanalytic people adhere to, but some people don't. So, some people believe in an unconscious and some people don't. So it, it, these, so the next set of things are more uh, uh, variable in terms of whether or not someone's going to adhere to it. Like the psychosexual stages, the oral, the phallic, the Oedipal phases. I would say very few current psychodynamic therapists adhere to this. And I, and you've heard me talk about this before, I find that these theories to be this, this particular area of psychodynamic psychoanalytic theory to be ridiculous. But the more I actually learn the reality of this concept of these concepts, Oedipal phase, oral phase, anal phase, phallic phase, uh, blah, blah, blah. The, and I haven't really looked into it that much, but the more I look into it, the more, I, the more I understand what the original theorists, including Freud were actually getting at they weren't being as literal as I think it's often portrayed today. So um, uh, having said that, there are Freudian ideas that are just really silly. Um, penis envy in terms of its raw form anyway is, is, is kind of silly. But, but you really just have to read the original Freud because some of his, when you actually read what he writes about penis envy and I don't have it in front of me. I remember thinking, Oh, I'm beginning to relate more to it. If you just sort of hear the term penis envy, you think, Oh my God, that's ridiculous. But when you actually read what he was talking about, and particularly when you think about again, the cultural context in which he lived, it, it starts to make a little bit more sense. Whether or not you adhere to it is another thing, which I don't, I don't, but you have to wonder if I lived in Freud's context and heard him really explain the full breadth of what he meant by penis envy. I just wonder if I would have adhered to it. I don't know. Other psychodynamic things are the the transference notion and the counter transference notion. I would say that most psychodynamic therapists, 
at least strive to understand their countertransference. But not everyone is a firm believer in transference, uh, but, but many are. Uh, projective identification is another area. Again, not all psychodynamic people are into that idea. You've heard me talk a lot about it before. Also, uh, many psychodynamic therapists, but not all, will focus on the relationship between the therapist and the client. Some psychodynamic therapists consider the relationship between client and therapist to be the primary issue at hand, and that that's the thing you should be analyzing, that's the thing you should be intervening on, instead of intervening on relationships outside of the therapy office. Also, uh, the notion of corrective experiences, I find this to be a little bit rarer as a concept that psychodynamic people adhere to. I certainly ad- adhere to corrective experiences. It's probably 60% of my therapy involves corrective experiences, which, if I'm just going to explain that one briefly, is the notion that <laughs> the the way in which the the therapeutic relationship plays out can provide a emotionally corrective experience or an experience in therapy between client and therapist that actually heals wounds, relational wounds that happened previously. You know, a client grew up with a extreme, with an extremely critical parent and sits down um, in my office and talks about how she totally screwed something up. You know, she says, Oh, I, I really screwed up at work and I showed up late and then I forgot to turn this one thing in. And then that caused the company to to lose tens of thousands of dollars and I'm lazy. I don't understand. So the expectation is that I, as a, uh, as a figure that they look to in terms of wondering what I'm going to say as a, as an emotionally intense relationship, they will look to me and think, uh, there's a, there's a chance that my therapist is going to criticize me and say something like, well, let's, let's look at how you can uh, stop that from happening. Maybe let's look at your, your sleep schedule, or maybe let's look at your organizational skills. Well, implied is a criticism of, yeah, what's wrong with you? And you're not organized and you don't sleep well enough. There's something wrong with you that caused that error that you had at work. Well, that wouldn't be a corrective experience because even though the therapist is doing quote unquote therapy, they're actually compounding the problem because it's a subtle dig at the client, if you know what I mean. And the corrective experience, the corrective emotional experience would be for me to avoid criticizing or implying a, a criticism to the client as much as I can and instead just say, oh my, how did that feel for you? What was that like for you? And then they say, well, I felt like an idiot. I felt ashamed of myself and I was embarrassed. And I would say, yeah, I, I get that. Um, what did, you know, how did how else did it feel? And what did people say? And how do you feel about that? And how do you feel about yourself today? And what's it like telling me? And so I'm being as nurturing and I'm trying, and I'm not really potentially explaining it well here, but I, I try to be as nurturing as possible without any hint of criticism. And 
that is a corrective experience because when they were children, whenever they did anything wrong, the parent was only critical and not nurturing. And so their personality is, has a wound and that wound is healed through corrective experiences. Now you won't hear psychodynamic people use the word heal. Uh, I use that word. That's in some respects, it's a humanistic psychology word. So you're getting some of the integration um, that I have. Um, Okay. So another, the final thing that I would say is less often true for psychodynamic people is they will sometimes believe in free association, meaning that it's a technique of therapy in which the client is encouraged just to freely talk about a particular thing. And as they freely talk and yammer and go on and on, they will start to discover things about themselves. You know, someone says, yeah, I was at work and I screwed this thing up. And you say, okay, well, tell just, you know, freely associate about that. That's really, well... Okay, it's so associate meaning talk about any kind of tangents that that come to mind. Okay, well, when I think about that, I think about this one time I went to the beach when I was a kid. I don't really know why that's coming to mind, but that's what I'm associating right now with this. And okay, tell me more about that. Who was there with you? Okay, well, my parents were there with me. And what else happened? Well, I, I I seem to remember getting my shoes wet, and then my mom really yelled at me. Interesting. And how'd that make you feel? Well, it may be, yeah. So you're freely associating on a particular thing. And then, and then you, you interpret at the end of all that, maybe collaboratively with the client. So, oh, it was, so it's interesting that you, you came here and you, uh, today, uh, you made this error at work and you, and you felt really bad about it. You felt ashamed. And it's interesting that the first thing you associated with that was this time at the beach. And I, I I just have to think that that time on the beach with your parents when you got your shoes wet and your mom yelled at you, that that was a really traumatic event for you and was a pivotal uh, defining moment of your childhood for you that really uh, put the uh, sort of nail and the final nail in the coffin in terms of uh, your relationship with your, with your mother. I wonder if, if that's how you feel about things. And so that's free association matched up with interpretation. Now, not every therapist does this, by the way. So not every psychodynamic therapist does this. But And that's just an example off the top of my head. I don't know if it's a very good example, but um, that's the best I can come up with in the moment. Okay. Well, thank you, Patron Elizabeth, for writing in and providing fodder for this episode on theory. Everybody out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.